everybody. You're listening to the 37th episode of the Hipster Baseball Podcast, HBP, where we talk about baseball drinks, Wacky D. Oh, yeah, he can dance in his hammer pants and everything else under the sun. I'm DeCarlo Calloway, alongside Dorian. On today's podcast, we break dance with the Oakland Athletics, a.k.a. the Oakland A's. See Houston repair the Valdez name. Present our take on miracles at midnight, as well as if there can be masters of none. And tell some jerks in England to do one. So we're gonna gonna begin the show just like we begin every show, every single week that we are here, transferring these beautiful voices onto this void called the interwebs. So today I am drinking Svetka vodka with melon peach Italian soda, which I purchased from Whole Foods, and it tastes scrumdiddlyumptious, to quote my man Ned Flanders. So what is it today that you are drinking? And hello, Dorian. What's up in salutation? Uh, skull. I think, I think that's how the Swedes say cheers, right? Skull. I Anyways, I, I, I never studied Swedish, but I'm glad that you're doing the whole Italian soda. You see, I did I did some some fizzy drink last week, mm. and it was good. It's, it's a perfect summer drink. This week, for number 37, I'm back supporting good American breweries. In my hand, I hold a cup of too legit to wit, which is a Belgian wit. It's a, from a 32 ounce crowler from a brewery called Solus Outpost in Falls Church, Virginia, which is about, I don't know, it's outside of Washington, D.C., the nation's capital. There's and a today, metro station that gets there. For, so that's. Does it? I don't yeah. Know. Mm, I think it's farther. It's too, a little too far away from a metro station. No, but there's anyways, a metro it's station in, in Falls Church. Yeah, there is. There's like two of them, but. Yeah. This is this the specific place is by the metro station, but okay. it doesn't matter because I'm gonna I'm about to transport some of this beer into my mouth. You know, I was only saying that just so for those who kind of know the met like the DC metro area, just so that they know like Falls Church is within <laughs> the proximity, which would be in the Beltway. Yep. And today, speaking of too legit to wit, I'm gonna talk about our one of our favorite dancers from the early '90s, MC Hammer. Oh. And the Oakland Athletics. Yes. The hammer. Hammer. It, I, I, it, I got people. I got a hammer story. I saw him in concert back in 91. I swear. It was one of the best concerts I've ever been to. And Vanilla Ice. It was Vanilla Ice who opened for him. And Hammer closed out. And he had the whole city of Oakland on the like on the stage. That was one of the best shows I've ever seen. Like real talk, Hammer gave an amazing show. Probably you know, one of the best shows that you could probably ever see. I'm going to say that we might have been not at the same place, but we might have been watching Hammer on the same tour because I remember seeing Vanilla Ice back like in 91 when he was like one of the hottest things probably behind MC Hammer. So go you. I didn't know this. We probably both had our little MC Hammer. Hammer don't hurt him tour. He he did a, he did a lot of hurting, but you know he did, Hammer did a lot of good things. Ladies and gentlemen, we want to raise a, a skull glass to and uh, cheers to yes, but Stanley it's... Stanley Kirk Burrell Burrell. I'm sorry, Stanley Kirk Burrell. He was born in Oakland, California. You and I know him as the artist from the Monster Hits. Can't touch this. Boom 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 boom. Can't touch this. He was huge. I mean, this guy, he was on the sideline of the Atlanta Falcons with Deion Sanders. He was he in was. death row. Like, he was kicking it with Suge Knight and Tupac at death row. Like, it was crazy. To those, think. Are, those are some dangerous people that he was with. 
but uh, he's from Oakland, so I'm sure he could hold his own. Even though he was a very, he had a very, he had very clean cut image. But again, the, another monster hit of was hit of his was too legit to quit, and they would do the too legit, too legit to quit. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> it was too, the, too legit. Oh, the it was, L, it, yeah, it's too it was legit like a two. It was like a. a index finger middle finger and then like an l too mm -hmm. legit to i don't know yeah. throat slash i don't too remember what it was too, oh yeah it was too it was too it was okay nobody's seeing this as, as we said it. but it was the two piece oh, on youtube l two and then cut like cut it out from like you know full house so i don't know. yeah people go on youtube and watch too legit to quit by mc hammer i'm sure it has like a three gazillion views so why are we talking about MC Hammer on a baseball podcast? Because MC Hammer, Stanley Burrell, was a it was and probably still is a huge baseball fan. Again, he's from Oakland. And what he was do, he would do as a young boy, he would be break dancing in the parking lot and he would also be selling like baseballs and things like that. He's just a young man hustling. One of those days, the owner of the Oakland Athletics, Charlie Finley, he was he rolled up in his limousine and he just started laughing. He's like, this young kid is just <laughs> He's drawing a crowd. He's drawing a scene. I'm going to hire him. By the way, they still had child law laborers back then, back in like 1973. But I mean, it was 1973. So who cares? <laughs> uh, uh, MC Hammer ended up working for the Oakland Athletics basically throughout his whole childhood. They hired him as an 11 year old boy in 1973. And he was with them until 1980. And the Hall of Fame Oakland Athletics uh, right fielder, Reggie Jackson, who also went on to play for the New York Yankees. Yep. He gave Burrell his nickname of Hammer because he said that Stanley looked like a little version of uh, the great Milwaukee Braves outfielder Hammering Hank Aaron. Who we lost, unfortunately, earlier this earlier year. This so. year. Yeah. In peace. So, actually, I actually have a story of Hank Aaron, too. I, I was at Let's a... Let's hear it. So... I was at this, was it the core? It was one of these like old civil rights groups. And one of my like distant cousins was like on their board and stuff. So we went to their gala and he was one of the um, honored guests. And so he was there and it was funny because at one point I was with my dad there and he went outside to smoke a cigarette and then Hank Aaron was out there and he was having a, just like a nice little conversation with Hank. I unfortunately did not get an opportunity to speak to Hank Aaron, but it was nice to know that while he was here on planet earth, I happened to inhabit the same room as him because he was a history making man, great all American athlete and a service to this nation and to black people all over the Absolutely. He's revered in Milwaukee. He's revered in Atlanta and he's revered uh, all over this country uh, for the things he did on and off the field. And so as uh, Hammer and Hank, as his, uh, there, there's actually also a picture on the, on the internet of a young boy, Stanley Burrell, little Hammer in the clubhouse, taking a picture with, with Hank Aaron. So by this time, by, by the late 1970s, Finley, the, the owner of the A's, he wasn't interested in owning the A's anymore. He was running his insurance business out of Chicago. He had a threadbare executive office. He didn't invest in the team at all. He ended up putting uh, Little Hammer, MC Hammer, in the owner's box, and he would be on the phone. It, it, DeCarlo, this is 19, like, let's say 19, circa 1975, 1977. These are long-distance calls. The, this cost an arm and a leg. So 
MC Hammer would be on the phone giving Finley the play-by-play in Chicago. This wow. was before Twitter. This was before internet. This was you didn't know the that was remote work. That was remote work. <laughs> like late. Like, MC Hammer invented <laughs> telework. No, no, Chuck Finley. No, Chuck, yeah, Finley invented uh, telework. He was he was quote unquote working for Chicago. So, anyways, so uh, for all of this that um, MC Hammer was doing, the clubhouse assistant, he was phoning in for the owner. He was awarded the joking title of executive vice president. And again, on the internet, they have a picture of Ham of MC Hammer as a young boy in full Oakland Athletics uniform, but his hat says E V. No, his hat says VP, <laughs> and he would get paid seven dollars and fifty cents a game, which is, I think, for a 11, 15 year old boy in the mid seventies, that's that's a pretty good chunk of change. So again, MC Hammer loved doing this because he was always around people. He was hustling. And he actually played high school. I'm sorry, he played second base in baseball for his baseball high school team. And he also tried out for the local San Francisco Giants. But um, they didn't, obviously, he wasn't good enough. So they didn't give him a contract or anything like that. And Hammer, later in life, Hammer said that Charlie, Charlie Finley, the, the owner of athletics, told him, quote, Hammer, I can't promise you you're going to be a professional baseball player, but I can say you'll make a positive contribution to your race. You're going to be somebody wow. of importance, end quote. Wow. It's how 20th century. No, no. How circa, how 1975. How 1975. Yeah. That's what this is. You are going to be, uh, you are going to, you'll make a positive contribution to your race. Like, wow. Okay. <laughs> That's Thank 1975. You. It's not 2025. So, yeah, uh, 1975 would have meant it was probably born in the 19 teens and who, or, you know. Yeah, he's probably born by then. I would say Mr. Finley was probably born in the 1920s, but still, yeah. yeah but his parents were certainly born like at who knows. Uh, anyways, um, William McKinley was probably president when it, when uh, Charlie Finley's parents was alive. Mm -hmm. But anyways, this is about MC Hammer because he's too legit to quit. Lastly, so he was a baseball guy. He went to college. No, he didn't go to college. He went to the Navy after he didn't get. He enlisted in the Navy. He served, I think, for two or three years. Thank you for your service, Mr. Uh, Burrell. I forget what, what his rent is, uh, what he did in the Navy. But anyways, when he got out of the Navy, some old players from the Oakland Athletics actually gave him seed money to start his own label. Uh, former outfielders Dwayne Murphy and Mike Davis gave the rapper a combined $20,000. That is a lot of money back in 19, let's say, 82, 84. Twenty thousand dollars to start MC Hammer's own record label called Bust It. So very eighties, I love it. And then from there, he just, you know, it took him a while, but he he went to the top and he had monster hits. He traveled all over the country. Uh, he got to, he got MC Hammer can go to his grave saying that he performed in front of the Carlo. So that's 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 a, that's a pretty big deal. My name is MC Hammer. And you will be rewarded. Yeah. People, you have to realize how massive MC Hammer was in the late, in the turn of the 19, around the late, around 1990. 1990s, 1991, 90, oh into 93. Yeah. Like it was 90 to say, he puttered, like 92. he sputtered out in 93. Yeah. So 90, like once, once Death Row rose, then yeah. Gangsta yeah, because if it wasn't yeah. like Gangsta Rap was already around with NWA, but when Death Row hit with Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre, yeah, Hammer, he didn't have a spot anymore in hip hop. Yeah, not, the, the, not not to that degree. And and a lot of it, 
And it wasn't as though, like you said, like Hammer has street cred. Like he was kicking it with Suge Knight. He was cooking with all these people in LA. Like enough that it was funny because I was listening to the Quest Love Supreme podcast a while ago, and MC Search talked about their beef, like a third base's beef with Hammer back in the day, and how allegedly Hammer had people searching for them to take care of business when they were on the West Coast, you know, when they saw them. So Hammer wasn't some slouch. He was some dude who definitely would, you know, he jump off on you if need be but his his persona the idea of dancing and all of that stuff like a lot of like real deep hip-hop heads weren't feeling that and then once the the genre like once the music started making a different direction and and you know for him he got really high publicity and he kind of got infamy too because of unfortunate financial decisions when he made his money and making 30 million dollars within a year in 1991, which is a lot of money. And unfortunately, oh, not out of doing anything bad, but he was really trying to take care of a lot of people, like too many people. And by doing that, by also wanting to live the lifestyle that he wanted to live, he found himself in, you know, some dire straits economically. But, you know, shout out to Hammer. Shout out to Hammer. That, by the way, people, Third Base was a short-lived hip-hop group out of New York. I yep. believe they were Queens. from Queens, yeah. Well, um, Search is from Queens. Um, what is it? Who's the other dude? Not, is it? It's Mike D? It was, no, not Mike D. It's, uh, can't, I can't remember the dude. I know it's MC Search and... Uh, DJ Richie Rock. Rich? No, it was Pete Rock. Not Pete Rock. It was... Uh, Pete Nice. Pete Nice. Pete Nice. That's it. Pete Nice. Yeah, Pete Nice wasn't from New York, though, I don't think. And he's oh, actually on the run because he has some, like, scamming situation, allegedly, with... Um, PPP loans? No, with baseball cards, actually. How ironic. Cards. Yeah, so unfortunately, MC Hammer's low point, I think, beyond the fact that he was bankrupt, in, 93, in 1993, basically, you could even say about 18 months from his absolute high, he was a point of just humor. People would just pick on him. In Chris Rock's film, CB4, Cell Block 4, that came out in 93, they make fun low of cash. Straight out of low cash. They make fun of MC Hammer, but they put a character by the name of Wacky D. I can <laughs> dance. I can dance. You know I can dance, dance, dance. Yeah, and he's just like someone to punk on. Like, ah, this guy's nothing. It's like, dude, that guy was the world like 12 months before that film came out. And the Wacky D was played by a Richmond, Virginia native, because I am drinking a beer from Richmond, uh, Stoney Jackson. That's how he played him, and he was he, he was, was also in Angels in the Outfield. Oh, was he? Okay, there yes, you go, another baseball reference. So, mm-hmm. but anyways, we're here to celebrate Stanley Burrell because Stanley Kirk Burrell because he's had an he's had an amazing life. Let's be honest. And even to this day, you can catch him with his Oakland Athletics gear because I mean the guy the guy the guy had been part of baseball all of his life. So I think it'd be pr- pretty cool for him to use some of his to Carlo. You know, he's in. Uh, what were you saying earlier about the uh, his investments? Oh, he's like on Twitter now. He'll talk a lot like around cryptocurrency and like Dogecoin, you know, all these cryptos that are popping up. And he'll do like, what is it, club rooms and speaking with people. So, I mean, he's still making himself relevant. You know, honestly, if you have any type of notoriety at some point, there's a generation of people who grew up with you who now can reconnect with you via the internet and see what you're doing. And you know what? He's kept a low profile, but he's doing all right for him. So shout out to Hammer, man. I'm gonna I'm gonna close out MC Hammer and this beer 
from Solus Outpost, the too legit to wit. I hope that that Mr. Burrell can take some of that crypto money and buy the Oakland Athletics. How badass would that be if he had enough money to get a group of investors together and buy the team that he used to work for 45 years ago? Yeah. Whatever. So that, that's my little wish in, wish in the dark right here. Cheers, skull, because Giancarlo is drinking some Swedish vodka. I was drinking. That thing is gone now. <laughs> you need a ref- you need a refill, my friend. But yeah, but that takes too much time to get up and go get it at this point. I'm not. That's there. true. But <laughs> if you, ladies and gentlemen, if you're breakdancing in the streets of America, we want to see a picture of it because obviously something inside of you, alcohol, has made you go out and dance. Send us a picture of what you're drinking this summer, whether you're listening to Too Legit to Quit, whether you're listening to Summer, Summer, Summertime by Will Smith. Send us a picture. Our Twitter handle is at HBP4040 and use the hashtag HBPDrink when showing us whatever it is that you're drinking. Someone else that's been able to bounce back. We all have, we all have challenges in our life. MC Hammer, he's, he's bounced back from his unfortunate bankruptcy. Someone else is the city of Houston has been trying to scrub the good name of Valdez because I want to talk about Houston Astros left pitcher, Framber Valdez. Are you talking about the Exxon Valdez disaster on the 24th of March, 1989, when 10.8 million gallons of crude oil were spilled in Prince William Sound in Alaska? That's really specific. And no, this has nothing to do with the Exxon Valdez disaster. Oh my God. It was very eidetic right there talking about the stud young left-handed pitcher from the Astros who we highlighted back all the way in episode four which almost seems like a lifetime ago he's not from Prince William Sound he's not from Houston he's from Palenque Dominican Republic and he actually performed really really well during the playoffs last, last October in 2020 and that's why how my eye got onto this 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 young man he's uh, he's an awesome pitcher he's very talented so there were high hopes for him coming into the season, but on in, in, on the 2nd of March, on his first spring training game, he broke his left ring finger. And that's a problem if you're a left-handed pitcher. So he's been out for two months. He, made, he finally made his return about 10, after 10 weeks of this finger issue of breaking his finger on the 28th of May against the San Diego Padres. He, it was really good. He only gave up two hits and he pitched in four innings and the Astros really need this young man because they, as a lot of us know, Justin Verlander, their stud pitcher is out all season because he had Tommy John surgery. What I love about Valdez, about uh, Valdez, not Exxon, but Faramber de Carlo is he has a killer, killer curveball, And I don't know why, but he just eats up right-handers because it comes right in towards the bottom of the strike zone and it just curves and dies almost at the ankles of the of the right-handed batter. He's, and they just, knuckler? He's throwing knee knuckles like that? No, no, he, no, no, he doesn't make them buckle. He doesn't make them oh. buckle because it's not coming at them. It's coming, it looks like it's an, it looks like it's coming straight down the middle, but at the bottom end of the strike zone. And then it just hooks right. Oh. And so they're swinging because they're like, oh, this is, he's just, he's just delivering a fastball right down the middle. I'm about to hit this 5,000 feet. And it's like, what the heck? Where'd the ball go? That's the worst. 
it, it's so beautiful to watch. And the thing is, like, you see him do this almost with every batter, and you're like, surely these guys can watch tape on him and know don't hit something that's going to – don't mm. swing at something that's going to come right down the middle because it's probably going to break no, at the end. you have to break that mental, like <laughs> – like you anchor yourself in that belief, like oh my god, like when you see a pitch coming down like the pike like that, that juicy, yeah, and it's like moving at like oh my god, am I really? It's like because then when you don't, it actually is like right over the middle, and you're like, why the hell did I swing yeah. at that? And then you know you get caught with it. That's that the the misdirection and deception that comes with being a, a pitcher who has good stuff. Oh, so much of an advantage, especially if you know how to hide it too. And you know how you like, you don't, if you're very conscientious about your movements, your gestures, because of course, over time with all the video and footage, people catch on to what it is that you're going to do. So to be able to stay stoic in a way and still be able to do that, you know, hopefully he'll be able to do that within his career if he's already started like this. Yeah, absolutely. This is his only. He, he's only had three starts again because he had he was recovering from that left, uh, that broken left uh, ring finger. So he started off against the Padres, and the he has worn out the Boston Red Sox because his last two starts have been for some reason because of scheduling wise, both have been against the Boston Red Sox, and he has had almost the identical stat line in both of those games against the Red Sox. Listen to this on the second of June. He pitched seven innings, scattered five hits, gave up one earned run, and struck out 10. A week later, on the 8th of June, he pitched seven and a third innings, gave up five hits, gave up one earned run, and struck out eight Boston Red Sox. He has been dominating the Red Sox this past week. I'm, I'm sure they're sick and tired of watching him, but... I'm really liking this guy, and he uh, he. I think he's one of the players like Shohei Otani, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Tatis Jr., uh, Ronald Acuna Jr. There's a lot of juniors that are really really good in baseball. I just realized that. But anyways, and a lot of fathers who are really like highly thought of themselves in order to name their sons after them. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So this is one of the guys I think he is. He's one of the pitchers. All the other guys I mentioned, well, except for Otani, because he's a pitcher. He's a badass pitcher and an amazing batter. But most of those guys are everyday players. I think Framber Valdez is one of those few must must watch guys. And my last thing is, I'm loving all these new guys coming up. A few episodes ago, we talked about the designated hitter from the Chicago White Sox. He had Ming Mercedes. He has a nickname, the Urminator. Remember, he has the burger down in the south side of Chicago. I want to give Framber a cool name. What it is, I don't know. Maybe you can tweet us a good picture, a good nickname of uh, what we should give uh, Framber Valdez a, a nickname that will go with how awesome he's been playing. That, that's just, that's just my thought. That's an interesting thought. I don't know. I was thinking like the Flambaminator. I don't know. Like Flambe. I don't know. Something just like Flambe came to my mind for some reason. That's a start. It's a, it's a vodka and do start, but it's a start. Yeah. And like, you know, and all these baseball players, Forget about baseball players. Everyone likes to look good. Fernando Fadez likes to look good. Tatis Jr. likes to look good when he's wearing his Padre swag chain. So does he have me, Mercedes. You know who else likes who else to like? You know what the girl? Who else I, likes to look good, man? Really? Go. Take it away, my, take it away, my friend. <laughs> so, for one, we just want to showcase today's sponsor, Slickbacks Hair Studio. It specializes in perms, coloring, 
barbering for the men, manicures and pedicures. So if you are that individual who feels as though that you are looking a little bit drab and you need to get yourself up right on the town and get that hair slicked back, take your ass to Slickbacks. Remember, Slickbacks Hair Studio specializes in perms, coloring, barbering, manicures, and pedicures. So, something I've just been sitting back. Like, recently, I thankfully had little moments to just kind of sit on my behind and watch television, which is a rarity because I'm consistently moving. And I was happy to see that there was a new season of Masters of None on Netflix. Have you ever watched that show before? I've heard of it, but I've never actually watched it. Okay. So it's a show created by Aziz Ansari, which is a comedian from Parks and Recs. Um, funny guy. Unfortunately got himself up tank. Well, Unfortunately, found himself tangled in a situation at the height of Me Too movement. His situation, you know, as people have found out more information about it, was not as, it was a date gone wrong, cross-signaling miscommunication, and unfortunately, you know, you get media attention, anger is like pent up and people kind of went out at him, but, you know, of all the situations, his was totally not, like, in my opinion, it wasn't such a bad thing, but... It was, it was doubtful whether or not the show was actually going to happen in the next season. And um, this season, it did happen, but it, it, it happened differently, which I definitely, you, you, I would say, thinking about it, it's part of it, it's artistic expression to try to do something differently because within this season, he just directed all of the episodes and he only, his character, Dev, who, just to give you a quick synopsis, his character, he plays his character, Dev, he's an actor, but he hangs around like he has his group of friends and he's trying to find love in New York and just navigating through the whole terrain of that. But his character is really pulled out of the season and it focuses on one of the other like characters, subsequent characters, Denise, who's played by Lena Waithe, who Denise is his black lesbian best friend, like his character's best friend from childhood. And she, her character kind of stole the show a lot in the previous two like seasons because she's very whimsical, but yet very just like charismatic and just creative, like really dope character. And so this season centered on her and a relationship that she had, like her character um, wrote a book, got really big notoriety. And so now she's in the phase of trying to develop ideas for a second book. She's married to her, um, to her wife who is a, a black British actor by the name, played by Naomi Aki. And um, it goes a completely different thing because the show previously was very comical, but it did have this more like romance comedy in the way that you would see Woody Allen movies and play towards that. But this time it was very adult. Like you have the two characters going through their own separate issues. You have one trying to figure out like her voice writing wise, the other one, trying to develop her career as um, an interior decorator and also wanting to get pregnant. So then that aspect comes into it. They don't, they do get pregnant at one point, but then the um, wife, Alicia, this is the character's name, had a miscarriage. And so that completely brought about a lot of insecurities within their relationship. They break up, they divorce, but then it has an interesting twist where they actually come back together, but they both are separate. Like Alicia does get pregnant, but on her own terms, on her own. Denise, we come to find out, doesn't find success in her second book, finds herself working at another job, but then gets married and has kids of herself. And even through the previous process, 
she didn't really want to have kids. And so it was interesting. Like it got really adult, but it was actually really good. Like I thought, for one, I thought it was really good to showcase a lesbian couple. Like, I think one thing people tend to not realize is that even though people might be homosexual, they have relationships and humans have relationships. And there's, and when there's love and emotions involved, there's the same, you know, what are we doing here? What are my aspirations as an individual? How am I going to do this? Am I prepared for this? So all of that stuff is actually taking place. And it really had them coming together and having like semi like affair, but not together. It was, it was interesting, but it was very adult. And so I was really, really good by watching. I thought it was like, wow, it was really something good. And um, so, yeah, I thought that that was really interesting. Like complex, like looking at things in complexity, especially with relationships is something I enjoy watching because, you know, no matter what, even if you're in a relationship, you have been in a relationship, you're not in a relationship, we can all, we can all empathize. We can all put ourselves in positions where, you know, being, having any type of relationship with a human being is kind of interesting. What are your thoughts on that? As long, again, I've, I've said this before, I know earlier that I've never watched the show, but you're talking about relationships and yes, we all have relationships. We have business relationships. We have personal relationships. We have romantic relationships. We have friendships, but is this show, it, this isn't like a real housewives of fill in the blank show of drama where people are throwing wine at each other. People are crying. Mm -mm. Mascara is running. <laughs> Cause that that's the type of relationship problems that I don't want to be watching. So this does not have that. Or not no, it was, it was very, it's, it's definitely something that you can relate to. Because but, you know what? I, I agree. That whole like fantasy, like, oh my God, we'll not be together. We'll be, you know, it's like, no, people are complex. Like we're complex individuals. We're consistently evolving into who we become until we are no longer. And so, you know, you find people and you work at times and other times you don't. And sometimes you might find yourselves back together. And, you know, I found that that was really interesting. And there was something else I actually found myself listening. Well, not watching. Watch what found. happens next. No, no. Watch what happens next. <laughs> no, but, let, but look, before you go on, I want to ask you a, a baseball question because Aziz, is, that's his name, right? Aziz, the, the yeah, creator. Aziz, but, yeah, Aziz Azari. He has a co-creator for the show. Uh, Masters of None, and it's uh, Alan Yang. Yeah. Alan Yang is a big Boston Red Sox fan. Are there any baseball references or Red Sox or anything like that in any no. of those shows? No, That's weird no, because no. if you're the creator, you can put in whatever you're like. You know, I went to this. I went but to you're school not, X. You're not create as a creator. You're not creating the actual content. You have showrunners to do it. Like you create the concept. So it's like you came together and they're like, oh why don't we come together and do like this concept? And then later on for each episode, you have your, well, for one, you have your showrunner, then you have your writers. And of course you can influence what specifically, like what content might get in there, but I, I can't recall anything. Like okay. It was, just, it was a random question. And uh, maybe we should start an HVP West coast, Hollywood podcast as well on nah. how to become a showrunner. The world is all <laughs> over the place. We don't need to move to the West coast to do that. But Another another gem that I actually found myself coming across, well, not come across, I knew this was in the pipeline for a minute, but The Midnight Miracle, which is Dave Chappelle, the podcast featuring Dave Chappelle, Talib Kweli, and most death, a.k.a. Yazin Bey. And so the show, like all the, like their episodes were recorded last summer during the pandemic at, 
um, Chappelle's 2020 summer camp, which for those who know, during the pandemic, Dave Chappelle, he lives in like rural Ohio and got permits and, and then had like outdoor shows during the pandemic. He was one of those few people who were just like, um, if we're outside in space, then why can we not do something? And so he did it on his own, like in his farm. And so apart from just having comedy shows where you'd have like Chris Rock and other famous comedians come out there and do like stand up. And of course, Chappelle himself, you had Chappelle, Tali Carly, even most of coming together and doing this podcast. And I have to say, man, a lot of podcasts, very con- like they're good. But they're not as good as ours. I mean, come on, let's call it Spade Spade. There's a lot of them who are good, a lot of them who are amazing. This one was outstanding. And I, I say this because, you know, people, when you think about particular, like, if you think about comedians, a lot of people wouldn't classify them as artists. But I would disagree and say that they are truly artists, but they are, they're social artists. Like, they're artists because all artists are show, social. But they're, they speak on what's happening, just as artists do. They just do it in a verbal way. And they, they might not do it behind music as, you know, MCs might do. Or they're not, they may be not singing a story, but they're telling and, and, and speaking about what it is that they're observing, but with humor. And so he mixes that with his friendships with Tali Kwali Ibn Bey. And they're talking about, not only from, not about music, and comedy, they're having really good conversations, thoughtful. Like I, the the one episode that they broadcasted, which you know they have like the series is exclusively on Luminary, but they have the first first episode and the second episode are going to be on Apple Podcasts. All the subsequent ones will be on Luminary, and then they'll have a vinyl record of them, which I think is so freaking dope. I mean, vinyl, as we know, has come back, but it's like I think the topic was how do you inspire, and they centered the show talking about their experiences they had with two like with individuals who are no longer here so amy winehouse you have mosef talking about his friendship with her and experiences that he had with her then you have them talking about mf doom who was the mc who passed away and how he had influences on their career as well as say black thought from the roots and then you have dave chappelle talking about robin williams and then you have dave and and most talk about a time at the punchline where Dave was just in the city. He ran into Robin Williams and said, Hey, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing a show here. And Robin, you know, he was like from talking to him, he didn't think he was going to show up, but he did. He goes in the green room and Robin Williams is there. And they speak about how it was like a amazing night. Like Robin Williams, he's like, for one, as a comedian, you kind of know when another top guy comes in and they're ready to cut their teeth and get on the stage and do something. He was like, Robin came in with that energy. He, he's like, most deaf. Like Robin started rapping with most deaf. It was like, it was such a nice thing. Like you could hear and feel the emotion that they felt from those experiences as they spoke about it. And that was something I thought I was truly, truly insightful about that. It's like how powerful and how good of a storyteller do you have to be in order to captivate your audience in a way that's going to make them feel, or at least maybe believe that they're, or feel emotions in a way that they can 
associate with those type of interactions. And I thought that that was just amazing. And I'm not surprised, Dave Chappelle, like he even said, and I quote, making a podcast isn't the obvious next move for me, but it's the right one, end quote. And I have to agree. He, it, it's perfect because I think for him, it goes to the, the old school records that comedians used to put out. You do you know you remember that like Richard Pryor oh, records Richard, Eddie Murphy. Richard Pryor that I used to have that I used to have that on tape. Mm-hmm. I would play it driving around Miami in my 1994 Toyota Tercel. Wow. <laughs> wow. So it's like it goes to that, and it it it, it is so quintessential Chappelle, man. Like he is our like 21st century Mark Twain, and it, without writing books. He's a great it, storyteller. You're right. Such a great storyteller. And it's almost like he's so like, even as he's gotten older and, and like, he's gotten wiser, like he's still funny as hell. Like, I mean, my God, like one thing I definitely have to do. I next time he goes on tour and I have to see him live because he's funny as hell, but just to be in that person, just to, to, to feel that I think that's yeah. dope. And I want him. I want him to make sure that you see him because just like MC Hammer, Dave Chappelle's going to go to his deathbed knowing that DeCarlo watched him. Yeah, let's hope. hope yeah, <laughs> let's hope. But yes, I would say for our listeners, if you have an opportunity, make sure you check out Masters of None. If you have not seen the first two seasons, I would say watch them and then watch the third season to see what you think about it. Because I think it's a really interesting thing, especially as you see artists continuously develop. And you have to remember Anybody who creates something is an artist and those who just have the platform and we all have platforms, thankfully to the internet, those who have the bigger platforms that are paying them to do it, they've cut their teeth and did everything just like we're doing, but they are artists. And it's very, it's really great to see how they mature and how their vision like changes as they continue to experience this life. So, but yeah. And then also check out the miracle, the midnight miracle. Let's, it's great. Apart from, of course, yours truly here is right, the greatest podcast out there. In my after opinion. people check out Hipster Baseball Podcast, then you're going to go and listen to the Midnight Miracle. And I'm going to start an unsubstantiated rumor to Carlo and say that Dave Chappelle decided that podcasting was his next move after he listened to every single one, all 37 of, all 37 of our episodes during lockdown. Yeah, I think it also had to do with the $27 million or plus. 27 million reasons? No, well, the millions of reasons Luminary gave him to be able to do that exclusively. Yeah, and and people, if you go onto the Luminary website, uh, I think it's called Luminary Podcast. I don't don't remember, but no, yeah, it is Luminary Podcasts with an S.com. They have uh, on front and center is the Midnight Miracle. We are not on Luminary Podcasts because, uh, you know, we need them to up the ante and maybe go to 50 million, but. That's a, that's a private conversation, but I'm, but it's really interesting listening to all this personal, yeah, personal music, comedian, entertainment stories, because normally what we were fed much earlier, maybe even a couple of decades ago, were fluff stories like VH1's Behind the Music, MTV's Rockumentary, and then they try to do it as the same thing with, with, uh, I think it was called the Rockumentary as well, right? Uh, I don't remember. I don't really remember, but then, but this is, that was controlled by Viacom owned, or maybe they still own uh, DH1 and, and MTV. Yeah, Viacom still owns them. 
so but now with these podcasts, people like Dave Chappelle and Most Def, who was Most Def was the first musical guest on the Chappelle show mm-hmm. in episode one, season one, episode one. I remember it was just Chappelle was driving around Manhattan in his SUV, and Most Def was just rhyming in the passenger seat. <laughs> That was it. It was so simple. It was so dope. It was so dope. But yeah, uh, I'm gonna. You know what? I I'm. I don't know about midnight midnight runner. I don't know about miracle mile. Whatever. Uh, what is it? Midnight miracle. Uh, the masters of none. Unless they have a baseball scene, I may watch it. No, I'm joking. But this, you certainly got me onto this. I'm gonna watch. I'm gonna. I'm gonna listen to the midnight miracle and I'll, I'll we'll send a tweet to Mr. Uh, Mr. Chappelle. No, he doesn't Twitter. He says Twitter is, he, he doesn't use any Twitter. And you know, it's so great when you could get to that level. You're just like, screw this. I'm above this because as he said on, was it Jimmy Fallon? He said, Twitter is the wall of a bathroom. Don't you like, you can't take it seriously. What do people write on the walls of the bathroom? Everything. They write what they're thinking. Like, People haven't realized that, you know, it's a void, but there, there's something on the other side. Chappelle's a tremendous storyteller. He has a great narrative. And sometimes narratives aren't that great about the stories you try to tell, the, commu- the, the messages we're trying to convey. Going back to messages, unfortunately, we have to sit back and see some written from individuals hiding in bushes right now as I see this, because I, not only are they hiding in bushes, they're beards that are hiding in those bushes. And I have to say, it's a whole collective of people. It's a lot of the English soccer fans who are booing the English national team players who take it in a, before the, before games, international friendlies, and also leading into, and during the Euros, allegedly, this is what they're going to want to do. So long story short, Dorian, you've heard about this, right? I have, and, I, and I, I, I'm, I'm getting a sense of who you want to tell to grow a beard and go into hiding. Yeah, so unfortunately, you have a lot of people uh, saying they're you know, sick and tired of the of decision to take a knee before the start of the game, and some fans continue to boo the gesture, and it's taking a distraction. And, you know, a lot of this people, you know, it's a controversial thing. People say, you know, take – politics out of sports doesn't need to be there i just want to watch my game other people especially english players are like why do we need to make an issue of this this is something that came out of america another group of people this is i this is support of a radical leftist organization people make gestures and people use their platforms okay i can get it like you have wilford zaha who's a black british player who says he says he feels like taking it is degrading and, you know, that there's other ways to promote racial equity as opposed to taking it away, which I completely agree. Of course, you got to get to the root stem of issues, which are much more systemic and much deeper. But if I'm a footballer and I, my platform is football and I'm a black footballer, if I'm a black British footballer, if I'm an African-American footballer, and I see that individuals who look just like me and also my colleagues, because it's not just random black guys on the street who are getting hustled or or thrown around. You have football, like American football players who've been like, had their problems with run-ins with the police. Black British soccer players have their run-ins with the police. And so if they want to make that gesture, that's fine. 
Now, does it need to be a mandated thing from the FA to the players to do? No. I don't think that that should happen at, at the same time as well. But I also don't think it's really in, in – I think it's really in poor taste when fans are booing it because things that are sensitive like that, it, it sends the wrong message. I get it if you're like, you know what, I want to focus on doing other things. Make your voice a little bit better. But if somebody's doing it, why don't I say anything? It, it's literally like three, like five seconds before, kick, like before the ball is kicked. And what does it do for you? What, it brings awareness to the fact that there are issues within society that we can't put our heads in the sand about? Is that the problem? Or what's the problem? I mean, blaming organizations? You could find other scapegoats. The issue is there's problems in the world right now, and we need to, come, we need to bring awareness to them to find collective solutions for them. And yes, the tokenization of football, I can get that. That's fine. But if you're sitting back and then just trying to then call in people derogatory names, like you see it on social media all the time. You know, I've seen one tweet, people were talking about Bokoyo Saka, who's a 19-year-old player for Arsenal, and then calling him a twat or going at Raheem Sterling or Marcus Rashford. Like, come on. If you don't feel them, don't feel them. But to then racially abuse people and then get mad when they want to bring awareness to the issues that are causing, that they see firsthand on social media, give me a break. So... Two fingers to you people. Take your beard, run in the back, you know, and do some net. Just, just go away. Just go away. Bye. It, 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 you're right. I don't think that it should be booing because they're just expressing something. And it reminds me in, in football and soccer, what a lot of players like to do is they, they, they wear T-shirts under their jersey. And when they score a goal or they win, they pull it over their head. And usually the message on their chest of the, that some random white T-shirt with a message on it, either to, it's either usually like in Spanish or English. That way, every quote unquote, everyone in the world could read it. It's they're an overjoy of, oh, my God, I just had a baby. And this is the, the baby. This is the name of, the, of my new baby. Great. Everyone's happy. Would you boo someone if Lionel Messi had a you know, let's say he had a new child tomorrow and he dedicates the entire 2021-22 season. Every time you see him and he scores a goal, he's going to be pulling over his head. I love my new baby. Messi's whack. Let's boo that guy. Forget that guy. Like, no, you're not going to do that. The same thing, a lot of these football, soccer players, they have – if someone passes away and the, when DeCarlo was talking, the first thing I thought about was a Spanish player for the football club, Espanol. Espanol is based in the, in the city of Barcelona, Daniel Jarque. He passed away of a heart attack at the age of 26, which is, it boggles your mind that you have a heart attack at 26, especially with a professional athlete, but we're not going to get into that. The point is Daniel Jarque passed away from a heart attack at the age of 26 back in 2009. And his really good friend, Andres Iniesta, who was also a player, one of the great players in Spain, a midfielder for FC Barcelona. And he, he admitted later, he's like, I went through depression because that's my friend. And I think it was him and Messi that had, um, and I think Guardiola also had something about for him as well. But nevertheless, um, 
it was pretty universal in, in Barcelona circles. I remember yeah. that. You had people all like who played for Barcelona, FC Barcelona, Espanol, like within the Cantalon, like they all were celebrating his life whenever they had an opportunity. Yeah, I remember that quite well. So again, you can't just say like, oh, it's lost its gesture because if you're willing to do that for the birth of a human being or the death of a human being, you're willing to do that for certain segments of certain human beings in a certain segment who are who have been struggling for centuries. Yep, yep, yep. But go away, go go have your beard, have fun, drink a pint, and two fingers to you, people. And don't boo people when they're trying to bring attention to something substantive, substantive and substantive. Substantive. Whatever. That too, mm-hmm. and important. Sorry, I didn't mean to do that, but I'm stumbling because of yeah. this amazing beer it is hitting me. It's too but legit. It's, it is super legit. It's too legit for me. But I'm not going to quit because we will never, ever tell our beautiful pets to go away because they bring us comfort, they bring us love, they bring us joy. We want to know what brings you joy, besides drinking, of course. Tweet us a picture of your pets. Our Twitter handle is at HBP4040. And remember to use the hashtag HBPets, H-B-P-E-T-S. And that's a wrap, people. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and shoot us a review. You can find us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at HBP4040, and our drinks will be in the show notes. Make sure you join us next time for a brand new episode of HBP Hipster Baseball Podcast. Peace.